Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast today on the pod. Mayor Brenda Locke joins us as she pushes back on the Surrey Police Service, wanting the city to set a firm date for transition. Plus, an entrepreneur from New Westminster joins us as she tells the story of running a business in a neighborhood rife with vandalism, crime, and mental health and addiction challenges. Plus, Freedom Mobile unveils a nationwide cell phone plan for $50, including 40 gigabytes of data. Are we on the verge of real competition in Canada? Say it ain't so. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's talk bakeries, or at least one bakery in Kamloops. Robin and Sean Haley have owned Irwin's Bakery since 2008. The bakery itself first opened in 1971. Like many entrepreneurs, they've decided to retire and are now wanting to sell the business. So what would it cost if you wanted to buy it? Well, not as much as you think. Joining me now to discuss the bakery and its unique cost is Robin Haley, who owns uh, Irwin's Fine Baking and Delicatessen uh, with uh, her husband, Sean. Uh, Robin, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Oh, no, I thought it was a fabulous story, and, and I want to learn more about it. Now, as I said, you've had the business since 2008. I'm going to guess, uh, like every entrepreneur, every small business owner, it's a, it, it takes a lot of work uh, to keep a bakery running every single day, especially with the long hours. It absolutely does. Um, we've been very fortunate. Our Irwin's Bakery, uh, being an independent Bakery, we've been able to morph the business quite a bit to adapt to the changes driven by COVID. So uh, I count myself very fortunate. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand when you, you bought the, the business in 2008, and if I think back, that's when the financial crisis hit as well. So not only have you gone through COVID, but you also had to deal with the financial crisis. We closed the deal exactly one month before the financial crisis hit in October. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> got to be some tough days, I bet. And then just the, uh, oh my God. Well, we went from a steep learning curve to a vertical learning curve. In hindsight, we were probably very lucky mm-hmm. because it really did force us to pay very close attention to every aspect of the business immediately. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a lot of very experienced staff. Some had been with the base with Irwin for years. And it would have been very easy to just sort of slide along. Hmm. So clearly, uh, like any entrepreneur, uh, you've got uh, a lot of long days of hard work and a lot of challenges and struggle. And now uh, uh, you want to retire and, and enjoy uh, your days, uh, and you've put it up for sale. So tell me, how much is the bakery, uh, what is it selling for? $1,000. One thousand dollars. Now, so if I came in with a thousand dollar check, I would, I would, you would, you would sell me the business, or is there more? No. There's more to it than that. What we wanted to do was to create an opportunity, one for us to reach the greatest number of people we could, so to give us the best chance of finding the exact right person or people to take over the business from us. So how we've done that is by creating a contest. And it's a skills contest. People can enter online at ownabakerycontest.ca and submit their, their letter or their essay outlining their experience, uh, their skill sets. If there is no Irwins, if they've grown up with it, maybe they have a vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe just looking at it online has given them ideas. So anything that tells us about them uh, we'll be grading all those submissions. Uh, we have our brain trust who will be making the final decision once we've narrowed it down to 10. Mm-hmm. 
And in the event of a tie, we have an incredible woman who will be our tiebreaker. And she's a, a well-known, renowned performance coach. So she has a great insight. Hmm. So, and the fee for entering is $1,000. $1,000 to enter. So uh, how did you come up with this idea? I would love to take credit. Uh-huh. But several years ago, I read a story about a woman who had become a widow and was trying to sell her home in Alberta. And the home was very, very expensive, and it was at a time when the Alberta economy was in a little bit of a slump. Mm-hmm. So she came up with the idea of a letter-writing contest. And one of the things that struck me about reading her story was how she wanted to find a way for a family who would never be able to afford a home like theirs to realize the home of their dreams. And that resonated with me. Hmm. Because I know there are an unbelievable number of incredibly talented entrepreneurs out there who do not have the assets to leverage in order to buy a business or start a business even in the conventional method. Hmm. You know, if we went on the market today, our business would be $500,000. That's a lot, of, a lot of money, and it's hard for people to come up with it. That is true. That is, that is a, lot, a lot of money. Um, can you give me a sense of what your day looks like, an average day for somebody who owns... Um, a, a bakery. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming people are going to come in for bread. You probably have to, you know, bake it early in the day. So those that want to apply, what what does a day look like for for you and your husband? Well, we're very lucky. Even though we have reduced staff now, um, we still have Daryl, who has been with us for nearly 40 years. He is a highly skilled red steel baker, so he's responsible for the breads and buns. And he's the one that comes in at 2 a.m. to do that. <laughs> 2 a.m., <And>, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, in case, just in case he calls in sick one day, so any future owner knows there may then be a 2 a.m. wake-up call. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we are down to 25% of our staff. So at the moment, there's Daryl, my husband, myself, and my mom comes in for time to help us during our lunch rest. Sean mm-hmm. and I arrive. Most days we get here around 6 a.m. If I have, you know, a large catering order or something, I may come in early. And we are open from 8.30 till 3.30. And we have gotten really good at getting a lot of stuff done in the day so that we're out the door usually by 4. Having said that, seasonally at Christmas, it's, you can reasonably expect to work about 80 to 90 hours a week during December simply because of the volume of baking that has to be done. And the way we do it, we're small batch, scratch baking, everything's by hand. So when I make a thousand Christmas cookies, they're all piped by hand. You know, so that takes time. Wow. And I spend a couple of hours on the weekend doing my paperwork. <laughs> like every small business person that has to, the, exactly. the, the paperwork you, does not go yeah. away. <laughs> no, and if anybody's ever contemplated a business or had a small business, you never really truly leave it, right? It's mm-hmm. always on your mind. It's, it's your baby. Yeah. So, yeah. 
in COVID, what we've done is when it's time for us to have a holiday, we simply close the doors for a couple of weeks wow. and we take our break. And that seems to have worked out really well. Customers are very supportive of it and very understanding. Uh, have you, in the time that you've owned the bakery, and, and since the bakery has been there since 1971, uh, people, you know, my sense is that people want um, fresh, they want local. Uh, have, are you seeing that sort of resurgence or at least a, a demanding customer that says, look, I don't want something generic, I do want something that's local, I want something that's healthy? There seems to be a, a, a not a growing trend, but certainly a demand for that this day and age. I would say there is a growing demand for it. We've been uh, very fortunate, again, that we are well-known. Irwin's Bakery is known for making everything here. In fact, we're one of the last, if not the last, bakeries in the interior that actually makes all of our own doughs and pastries, even our puff pastries. It's unheard of these days. Everything we make is chemical-free. There's no additives, there's no preservatives, there's no shelf-life extenders. And people are starting to recognize that the chemicals that are being added into some of the generic foods are having an impact. We get people several times a week to come through the door and say, what can I eat? My doctor says I need to avoid this and this. And this uh, Irwin Bakery is a place you can do that because we know exactly what's in every product we produce. So we're finding an uptick in that. That is great to hear. Uh, Robin, uh, so just to confirm, so those listening uh, uh, around the Metro Vancouver and Southern Vancouver Island and, and wherever else by streaming, it's ownabakerycontest.ca. It's a $1,000 application. And the essay itself, uh, it does it have to be one page, two pages, as long as somebody wants it? It's up to the individual. I would rather somebody gave me their full story than worried about hitting a word count, so we did not accept that. Mm-hmm. They can either fill it out all online, or they can create the document on the computer and upload it. Mm-hmm. There is a spot to do that on the site. And there's a grading uh, sheet on the site, so they know what exactly we're looking for and how much value we're placing on each component. Well, it sounds like a fabulous bakery, certainly a fabulous community as well. Uh, I hope you hit the 500 application mark, uh, and uh, and I wish you all the best in retirement as well. Certainly sounds like you've earned it. Thank you so much, Robin. Thank you so much, Jeff, for your time. All right. That is Robin Haley. Owns uh, She owns uh, Irwin's Fine Baking and Delicatessen with her husband, Sean. And like she said, they want to give away this bakery uh, based on uh, the best essay that they receive. Now, when you hand in that essay, the entry fee is $1,000. The deadline is July 20th. Once again, if you want a uh, to own a bakery in the interior, it's uh, the contest uh, site is ownabakerycontest.ca uh, and you would own Irwin's Fine Baking and Delicatessen in Calips. Well, more than half a million Albertans have cast an advance ballot ahead of Monday's Alberta provincial election. That's a voting rate that should break the previous record of roughly 696,000 people, which was set in 2019. Now, the Alberta election uh, is, for all intents and purposes, a a two-horse race between the Alberta NDP and the United Conservative Party. There are 87 ridings in Alberta, and the UCP and the NDP are the only two running a full slate of candidates. It has, uh, from certainly where I 
<laughs> where I sit, it has been a bare knuckle, elbows up affair between the UCP led by Danielle Smith and Alberta's ND, ND, Alberta NDP's Rachel Notley. Now, it's important to keep an eye on our neighbours as we are connected economically to Alberta, of course, and there's, of course, a significant amount of people-to-people relationships and family relationships as well. What happens in Alberta impacts British Columbia and vice versa. Now, ahead of election night on Monday, I thought it would be important we get a snapshot of what's happening on the ground. And our next guest uh, is a perfect uh, guest uh, to talk a little bit about Alberta politics. That's Stephen Carter. He's president of Decide Campaigns and co-host of the Strategist podcast. Stephen, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jazz. This is great. Well, you know, I've been watching from afar, and and I uh, am incredibly intrigued uh, by the Alberta election more so than any other time. And I'm not sure why that is. Maybe it's a it's a polarizing. It's whatever it is. It's a it is very interesting, even as a British Columbian, to watch it. What's your sense of things in this uh, election as we head to election day, voting day? Uh, is it as tight as people say it is? It is incredibly tight. I was talking with some folks yesterday. We were guessing that we could be seeing a uh, you know a, a victory that would only have a few thousand votes uh, that would decide the outcome. Um, this is going to be a, a super close election, and it's going to be difficult for people to even make up their minds on who they want to support. Which you know I almost thought that this was going to be an intervention. You know you'd be calling from BC to tell us all the mistakes we were making. <laughs> Because uh, we're making quite a few, and, and I really do appreciate you caring about us. It's uh, it's quite a time out here in Alberta. Oh, I bet. Now, um, what are the driving issues there? The driving issues are similar to what's driving issues in, in, in British Columbia. We've got the same social disorder issues that you've got in B.C., uh, tremendous homeless populations, uh, drug use issues, uh, downtowns that are fading. Uh, then we also have... Um, economic issues right we we are in the midst of uh, our biggest fire season this early ever and we're still not talking about climate change um so you know we have we have the economy as, and and the future of oil of gas kind of hanging over the election but no one actually wants to talk about it and that's too bad because that would have made a, a very interesting election but I'm not sure anybody telling the truth could have been actually elected in Alberta. It, it, to me, uh, I've always uh, assumed that to win an election in, in Alberta, one had to win uh, two out of three uh, areas, which would be Calgary, mm-hmm. Edmonton, and then rural Alberta. Um, is that still essentially the, the the math, the political math? Well, and, and we're just making it smaller and smaller. Uh, right now, uh, Edmonton is entirely going to the NDP. Mm-hmm. Rural's almost entirely going to the UCP. Uh, and we've got a battle in Calgary where the the major- majority of seats are going to the NDP. But will it be enough? They need to get somewhere in the neighborhood of 17 to 18 seats in Calgary if they're going to, to hold the election. And, you know, it, it's close. We're watching it fall down now to about four, four to six seats. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I listen and to to Miss Smith and watch her on television, um, I, there are things sometimes I kind of shake my head at when the comments she's made, some of the positions she's taken. What is her appeal? <laughs> and I don't mean that I in a condescending way. No, it, well, uh, you know, I'm curious. I don't know. She's she's running on. I'm going to protect you from the from the things that you're worried about. 
And so she's got a huge population of anti-vaxxers that support her. Um, but the more important thing than, than anti-vax or any of these kind of, um, you know, crazy things and crazy supporters that she's got is the UCP is seen to be the defender of the Alberta economy. And we, we vote conservative out of almost habit here. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly it's not because of good governance. I can assure you of that. Um, but because of that habit, uh, she's able to get people to support her, and they are being told that if you vote for the NDP, you you will, in one fell swoop, destroy the Alberta economy, hmm. um, as though world economics aren't doing a good enough job already. That still uh, remains so an Achilles heel, not- though, for Ms. Notley, though. I mean, people, if they're saying Danielle Smith is the person, there still remains a healthy skepticism of the NDP and Ms. Notley and their, and their ability to to uh, handle the economy. It's been really interesting watching uh, Notley and her team manage that. They have been ignoring that part of the issue and instead have just focused the negative campaign on Danielle. And the campaign has basically been, uh, what crazy thing will she do next? Um, and the, the, the positive thing for the NDP is that virtually every day, um, there's been another crazy thing that's been unearthed that, that Danielle Smith has said or done. Um, every day has been another issue, um, including being told by the ethics commissioner that she broke the law in a way that was not respectful of a democracy. And that's just kind of been swept away by the, by the UCP uh, uh, followers because they just want to be conservative regardless of how, what it costs us in the long run. But whether it's UCP or NDP, I mean, when I think of uh, Calgary and, and Alberta, and I've been there in a couple of years, uh, look, forward to go back, look forward to going back this summer, uh, I, I see a very young province, uh, an increasingly diverse province. I mean, you are going through significant demographic changes. Well, we have uh, the third most diverse population in Canada. Here in Calgary, I mean, uh, you know, I was out in Surrey for the uh, for, for the last year, mm-hmm. and it felt very much like home. Uh, we had, uh, you know, the truth of the matter is, we have a huge visible minority population that that is uh, active and exciting and bringing us. We have the highest percentage of entrepreneurs in Canada in Northeast Calgary, and that's entirely representative of of our immigrant population. You know, they've come in and. And taking Calgary by storm, and um, but that's that's the new Calgary that I see, that you see, Jazz. That mm-hmm. sometimes the uh, old staid um, conservative voters don't see. Um, they see threat where I see opportunity. Well, it's going to be an interesting uh, weekend and, and look forward to uh, chatting with you very soon in regards to what it all means <laughs> Tuesday morning. Well, so, <laughs> Keep an eye on your neighbors. Keep an eye on us. I, you know, we, we need your help. Yeah. We, this is uh, it's a difficult time for us, Jazz. So no. thanks for checking in on it. Yeah, we always do, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Let's set our sight on the longest-running political soap opera in the region. Yes, I'm talking about the Surrey policing story. Now, earlier this week, Chief Constable uh, Norm Lipinski called for a firm date 
to decide the city's policing future. Now, Mr. Lipinski uh, pleaded publicly with the city's decision makers to stop delaying and make a firm call on whether they will be the only police force in the city going forward. Now, you may recall uh, in late April, the B.C. government recommended the city continue the transition. Now, since that announcement by the province, there has been no movement on the issue, even though continuing to stay with two police forces is costing the city of Surrey $8 million a month. For more on this, joining me from Ottawa is Brenda Luck, the mayor of Surrey. Brenda, thank you for joining us today. No problem. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Well, I know you've been very busy uh, in Ottawa with a lot of meetings uh, as you're, with your role at Metro Vancouver and with the, the city of Surrey. Uh, back here in Vancouver, uh, Chief Constable Norman Lipinski of the Surrey Police Service was out uh, earlier this week calling on city officials to make a firm decision sooner rather than later. Uh, what do you want to say to that? Well, I thought his, his timing was uh, quite interesting. He knew full well that I was leaving for the uh, big city mayors and, uh, the, um, and the conference here with the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, and he decided to make the release the day I left. Um, I can't help but wonder if that wasn't deliberate. I was speaking to, uh, to Chief Lipinski on uh, Tuesday night before I left. We, we had a, a meeting and uh, didn't mention anything to me then about the release he did, but so be it. Uh, his comments that, you know, uh, the city needs, or certainly the SPS needs, a firm date to, to start for planning purposes, to move forward. What do you say to that fundamental point that he is making, is that the city and the SPS cannot uh, afford to wait too much longer? You know that I mean that's a fair comment, and I I tell you I think uh, we said that in December 2022 when we made the decision. It's been the Solicitor General that has dragged his heels for five months, and uh, now um, the chief decides I'm supposed to make a decision in five days. It doesn't work like that. We will do it right, not rushed. Um, the uh, the chief knows full well. Um, my position and council's position, we made that crystal clear in December. Um, we now have to look at a report, which we will do. But, um, you know, to all of a sudden, when he knows uh, the majority, the vast majority, in fact, only two members of council are still in Surrey. Everyone else is at the uh, the FCM meeting. For him to put out his, his cry at this point is absolutely... Um, absolutely irresponsible and, and pretty disrespectful. Uh, you, you obviously disagree with what he has said, but there are many people in your community, your taxpayers, are saying, look, just let, we need to get on with this. Uh, whether it's RCMP or SPS, let's make a decision and move forward. Uh, you know, paying for extra every month, it, correct me if I'm wrong, it, it costs the city about $8 million a month to, to remain yeah. in the present pos- position? Yeah, you're, yes, it does. It costs us $8 million a month, and the, it has taken the uh, Solicitor General up until he decided to present us with a very redacted report um, five months to uh, to come to the conclusion we needed to make a decision. And now they put two um, options in front of us, uh, disrespecting our right to choose, but however, they gave us two options, and now they want us to... Uh, they want to snap their fingers and make us jump. We're doing everything as absolutely quickly as we can. 
I did not expect to get the NDA um, given to me at uh, on two o'clock at two o'clock on uh, on Tuesday. Uh, I was in meetings and I was in later meetings with uh, Chief Lipinski. So um, we're doing everything at at the fastest pace. I absolutely do agree on one thing. We need to get this resolved. We thought it was resolved in December. Uh, I am disappointed that the sole gen can't understand that the city had the right to choose, but apparently he didn't. So uh, we'll move, um, we're moving as quickly as, as we can. But now we have to look at an NDA that's being put in front of us, and we have to get our legal advice on that because there's two things I have to make sure of, Jeff. Mm-hmm. First one is that I can be transparent with the public because I've always said from the get-go that us being transparent with the public was critical to our decision. We have always been transparent. The second piece is our own um, our own indemnity. And what is the uh, what is the issue around indemnity for myself, for council, and for our staff at Surrey? And so we have to now get our lawyers to look at the NDA that the province gave us. And it's really important to also know this. There has never, that I can find, and I've talked to a lot of mayors, and I'm here with with a lot of mayors, nobody's ever heard of anything as ridiculous as the province asking for a city to sign a non-disclosure agreement. We already have all the checks and balances. We have hosts of office. We have, um, we in Surrey, of course, have a, um, a commissioner that oversees us. We have rules around closed meetings. We have all of those parameters to work under. I work under those agreements every day. Every day I'm looking at information that has to be enclosed or has to be protected information. But just just, so, to, just uh, to confirm, you have not signed an NDA as of yet? We only received it when I was, we only received it Tuesday evening late. I haven't even had a chance to read it. We were on a, I was on a plane all day on Wednesday and I'm at a conference today. It took, it took them 20 days to get the NDA to us. They should have had all this done when they first gave us the, uh, the documents, we could have had our lawyers looking at it 20 days ago, but they didn't. So uh, you're back next week uh, from your conference. Uh, Monday. Monday, yep. so you'll still have to go through the NDA, that's the new NDA that's been written up, and discuss it with your lawyers before you sign. And once that is done, and even if you do agree, you would only then, after you've signed, be able to look at the report the province uh, presented uh, a while back. It's, it, it's not a new NDA. It's the only NDA I've received. I haven't received another NDA. So um, I don't understand, first of all, why we're doing it or why all of a sudden um, the uh, the ministry decided to pivot and require an NDA, um, but they did. So they've put us into this uh, position where we have to get our lawyers to take a look at that. Now, Brenda, uh, besides uh, the NDA, what's the chance that uh, the redacted information that you're going to read is going to convince you uh, that you need to move towards the Surrey Police Service? Right now, what I'm hearing is that there doesn't seem to be an argument where this report will convince you that you need uh, to go go forward or move forward with SPS. It would have to be incredibly um, compelling and you know, I, I can't really comment on it because I haven't uh, I haven't seen it. 
so I can't comment on the information. But I can tell you that the process from the beginning, four and a half years ago, to now with this NDA has been so incredibly flawed that this this whole exercise has been really, really quite amateur. I am... I, I do agree with uh, Chief Lipinski on that, for sure. This has all taken far too long. And why? Because there hasn't been proper and due process from the beginning. And I can tell you, we will be looking into that all the way through because this has not been fair to the residents and the taxpayers of the city of Surrey. Mm-hmm. And that sits squarely on the Solicitor General's shoulders. There should have been requirements for the process to be proper and do, and they should have made sure that happened. Is it just me, but it seems to me the previous administration under Mr. McCallum, you know, there wasn't much openness about what the true cost of this transition was going to be publicly. Not like a true conversation did not occur with residents. My sense is with $150 million thrown in by the provincial government with this particular report, clearly the numbers that were offered up by the prior administration were completely off, or there was never a clear, open, transparent conversation with Surrey residents and increasingly provincial taxpayers because they're now having to come in with $150 million, that that was one of the core issues that no one's ever had an honest conversation about the uh, the cost, an open, transparent conversation with the public uh, involved. That is a, That is so true, and I have raised that so many times over the past number of years, Jazz, and it's, uh, I think that's probably one of the biggest frustrations that I have with this whole thing, that there was never those checks and balances put in place so that we know that the public policy that we're delivering as, as a city governance is proper and is something that is going to um, be something for the future, something that generations are going to be paying for, and we have not been able to do our due diligence. And I can tell you that absolutely there was never any references to the money. We can look at the old um, budgets, and they were completely off the wall. There's no doubt about that. But I want to just comment on the $150 million, if I could. Mm-hmm. We still in the city of Surrey do not have one stick of paper that comments to that. I do know uh, the deputy minister has said it. There is nothing past Treasury. So we know that that money is really, in my mind, just pie in the sky. Final question to you. My sense here is that uh, you're not convinced, and the majority of council isn't convinced, of what uh, the minister uh, presented to the public uh, not too long ago, that this inevitably could end up in court with the provincial government pushing uh, for SPS to be accepted, city council saying no, and prospective uh, governments be given, uh, provided legal advice to say, yes, you do have some say, in this case, Surrey or the provincial government, this will inevitably end up in court potentially. You know, I, I'm certainly I, I would absolutely hope not, and I believe that the Solicitor General wouldn't want to see that. Uh, what I can tell you is, today I know I have a choice. The uh, Solicitor General gave us um, two options, box A, box B, if you will, and we're picking box B. That's what we picked originally. That's what we're sticking to. Now, when we get to uh, see the final document, um, if we get to see the final document or if we don't, um, we will be choosing between box A and box B. That's really it. If um, 
if we pick the one that the the um, provincial government, are you saying that they're going to take us to court for not picking their choice up? I don't think they would do that. So um, I think that we will be moving forward with whatever our council chooses. I mean, at this point, I can tell you that it's sticking with the RCMP. I've always said that. That is what our council voted on, and that's what we're sticking to at this point. Um, but we did say we would review the entire report. Brenda, thank you so much for your time today. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Bye now. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at JazzJoeHallBC. Talk to you next time.